I knew that I did not want to go right back to nine to five, but I knew I needed money. So again, it was almost like just trying on different, you know, same goal, but different ways of going about it, if that makes sense. Like I can make money, I can travel, I can like, how, how do I, how do I work it out? So let me see if seasonal life is for me. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I'm here with Sarah Ali. How are you today, Sarah? I'm well. How are you? I'm just fantastic. So you are actually spent a lot of time in my home state of Ohio in Columbus. Not on but, not on purpose, but yes. Right, right. Let's jump into the middle of it and then figure our way out from there. So what was your first seasonal job? My first seasonal job was uh, working as a deckhand on the lower Mississippi on a riverboat cruise. Um, I think what it was were... spring, last like spring of 2018 for eight weeks. Oh, so that wasn't that long ago. No, no, it wasn't. What was sort of the day-to-day duties of a, the deckhand on a riverboat? Mm. Oh, gosh, what weren't we doing? So we were working 12 12 to like maybe 14, depending on, you know, when we were docking hours a day, every day. So we were like doing the whole maritime payment, you know, like a daily rate as opposed to hourly. So I definitely wasn't in it for the money. But yeah, we did, we did everything, everything from cleaning the boat to steering the boat, obviously with under the supervision of a captain to taking out the trash, taking, loading and, um, and unloading shipments to just all the dirty stuff too. Anything that, you know, it was eight of us. I was, it was just me and one other female. Yeah, we just basically did all the grunt work. Like we didn't do anything sexy at all. Um, we had these awful, I call them awful uniforms. Like it was like, you know, those dickies, the the blue, it was like a blue dickies um, with like a, a, a red polo shirt. And uh, yeah, and we were just, that's how people identified us. We had all different sorts of shifts, which was actually very difficult because we would change the shifts weekly. Um, So we would rotate it. So it would start from like seven to seven and then eight to eight and then midnight to noon uh, for a couple of weeks, four to four, 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. a couple of weeks. Um, that was my favorite shift because it was the laundry shift. And it's not because I love laundry because I don't, but it was like the most peaceful, I guess, task. You know, like I was stuck in this little, in the laundry room doing all the laundry for, you know, the the boat. And I get to play my podcasts and my Nora Jones and really just nerd out and yell at anyone who came in. But yeah, we, we, we did everything. Our primary thing was to to tie the lines and to be all hands on deck when it comes to All right, we we'll get to, the, get to the fun stuff. Yeah, okay. The fun stuff. What was, What's what was the your fun route? Stuff? Like, oh, our route. Looking at all oh. the cool shit that you can see on the side of the boat as it passes um, by. You know, I it, it's, it's weird. Like we were on the lower Mississippi, so we would start in Port Nola, 
New Orleans. And then we, it was a five day. So we'd start in New Orleans, then we'd go to Baton Rouge and then we would go to the theme of it. Like all of the, it was an American, American owned uh, cruise line. The theme of it, this particular one for the lower Mississippi was historical. Like it was, so you'd be visiting old mansions, old plantations, and then New Orleans. And then they would have people come on in like entertainers and stuff. We would just be following. We didn't go to exciting places. We did go to Memphis once. Um, I think twice actually. And, and they, you know, they toured, what is it? Graceland, I think. But yeah, for the most part, it was, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't very exciting. Our clientele was like, you know, elderly, uh, wealthy people. Yeah, I mean, it was really beautiful though. I found the I found the river very beautiful. I was super connected to the river, but that's because I was writing and I was doing my poetry. I was just being like, it, it was just the way that I was looking at the experience was differently. Whereas like most of the people were just kind of like, you know, I'm here to work hard and play hard and, you know, collect my paycheck and go home. I, I actually, the different shifts made me really appreciate um, the river and what we were doing. And I really was excited about um, tying the lines because I wanted to do something that I, that t- women don't typically do. And I wanted to challenge myself to do it. So yeah, I think I just had a different, a different view of it. I, I guess like I, I later found out that like boat life, hashtag boat life is really it's it's really not that different depending on whatever boat you are on, you know, like whether or not you're on this, like sometimes we pull up next to these great big, um, you know, those, uh, what are they called? The, the big, uh, cruise boats. I don't know. The ones that like go to the Caribbean and stuff. They were so big. Like they were, they could eat us like a million times. <laughs> like the cruise uh, ships. Yeah. Yeah. The big ones like the, uh, Oh gosh, I'm forgetting the names, the Norwegian or the, um, I don't know. There's like so many of them. Norwegian, that, Carnival, Princess. Yeah, yeah, all of those. So sometimes we'd pull up next to them, but we just stayed on the lower Mississippi. We went from, uh, we'd go to rural parts of Louisiana. Obviously, we'd start in New Orleans and then we'd go to southern parts of Mississippi. So like Natchez, Mississippi, Vicksburg. Again, just following this historic route. How did you decide to want to be the deckhand of a riverboat and, and why? How did you, you find it? And also, why did you go looking for it? I didn't really go looking for it. I think that's the beauty of internet. Honestly, like Google, just like searching. I was just looking for, I, I, at the time I was living in Vermont. I was living at a Buddhist retreat center, living and working there. I was supposed to be there for a year. And it didn't, I, I wasn't working out for me. I, I wasn't, you know, I, it wasn't terrible, but I just wanted to switch gears, you know, like kind of like a half volunteership, half, you know, a spiritual kind of gig, I would say. And it was in beautiful, you know, rural Northern Vermont, right between the Green Mountains and the White Mountains. I had already spent like the past couple of years just on this like spiritual, mystical, non-working journey. When I decided to leave Vermont after a few months, I really wanted, I wanted a physical, physical labor job. I wanted like a labor intensive job. Deckhand wasn't the first thing that came to me. I was just like, I like my thought, honestly, as stupid as it sounds, was like migratory worker thought like I thought like maybe I wanted to do uh work on farms I even thought about like woofing but woofing really you know they don't pay you 
I, I like the, the financial aspect was pretty big for me. And I just wanted to work. I just really, really wanted to work. I think it was like, I had heard people talk about, you know, working on a cruise and I didn't want to go anywhere like in the Caribbean or anything because I had no idea how I would be like as far as whether or not I would get seasick. And I just, I, I, I didn't want anything crazy. So when I Googled um, jobs, you know, remote or temporary jobs, it was the beginning of the season for them or just seasonal work in general. Um, it was about February, I want to say, or late January. I just kept getting all these ads on Indeed for this uh, cruise line, this uh, national cruise line company. So I just applied. And within like a week, um, I applied, they had hospitality positions, but I just made myself open because I the point was for me to get a job. I didn't want to limit myself. And they contacted me within a week. They did it all through Skype. They're based in Connecticut. And at the time I was in Vermont, so I wasn't super far away. Not that the interview was there but the training would be there. And then within like a week, you know, they had given me uh, the position. They tried to steer me actually to hospitality initially. Um, and I think that's just because I had hospitality background. I was working at the desk at the retreat center. I'm pretty sure the fact that I was a female probably made them want to just steer me towards the hospitality aspect. Uh, but no, I said I wanted to be a deckhand because I'd never done it before. And honestly, a lot of my friends and my family thought it was a huge joke. One of the biggest jokes, they were like, well, you know, you can't wear heels, right? Which I thought was like a little, a bit, you know, a bit much. So part of me was like, okay, let me, let me rise up. Let me rise up. And it was supposed to be only 16 weeks. I ended up only staying eight because I found a job in Alaska, which was a dream of mine while I was on the river. What exactly was, was the dream? Did it, did it come to you in the night? Alaska luring you in? <laughs> no, no. The dream of living in Alaska, not the actual job. The job was an accounting job. Um, and I made my profession as mostly as a writer or, you know, something else. So I never, ever did accounting before. But I always wanted to live in Alaska. And actually, I had, I had thought about just, you know, moving to Sitka just a year prior. Just, you know, I wanted to, you know, write. But I like there was no purpose for it. I just always just wanted to be there. I put that on the back burner. So when I went on, I, I went on, at, by that time, I knew about CoolWorks, which is, you know, the, the seasonal um, website job for jobs for, you know, most, most seasonal jobs. And when I saw Alaska, uh, which was a lot of them, I, I took it. And honestly, that happened within three days too. So there's like a lot of serendipitous to all of this too. I mean, I think a lot of it had to do with just like right place, right timing. The Alaska job, I was never supposed to, you know, like the girl backed out. They hired someone and the girl backed out and I had a degree and I told them I could do it. I, I got hired and yeah. And then I left. I, I left the river shortly after that. How did you hear about Sitka? Because you, you wanted to go to Sitka, but I had never heard about Sitka until I got all the way up to Alaska at first. Um, I heard about Sitka because it was, I was really, I was uh, taken by how remote it was. Not that there aren't a lot of remote places in Alaska, but, and I also really, I think like long time ago, I, I heard something about it, like directly facing the Pacific Ocean. And I was just so taken by that. So I, I looked it up. I, like, honestly, like most of my, how did you get here moments starts with like a Google search. 
that is very ignorant at first. And then it kind of just snowballs into, oh, these places exist. These things exist. People like this exist. Okay, well, what are the logistics of of getting to that place or getting into that lifestyle? So I didn't have the logistics for going to Sitka. There'd be no reason. I had no reason to go there. I didn't have a plan. I knew I wanted to, you know, finish writing my book, but I didn't like I I I there wasn't anything concrete. So I just kind of put it on the back burner. And then when Alaska, Seward, Alaska, um, which is definitely not Sitka, came up, I was like, oh, well, I still get to be in Alaska. The dream was really to be in Alaska. And I tried to actually go to Sitka when I was in Seward, but ooh, they said it was gonna it was gonna be like a whole thing. It was gonna be very expensive. It was gonna take a lot of time. And I found out that the reality of actually getting to Sitka was uh pretty difficult so sitka never happened but it will but it will (laughs) it's it's tough you kind of either have to stow away on a cruise ship or find Mm -hmm. a captain that thinks you want a deckhand for him and then yeah once you get there just run off into the woods pretty much pretty much and like the the deckhanding i mean alaska deckhanding that's another interesting thing like the river i mean the river was i don't want to say it was nothing but it's nothing compared to the sea you know, like I, I would go out on boats, um, like on our cruise are like, it, I worked for this place called Kenai Fjords Tours. And like, we would give, you know, glacier tours, wildlife tours. I got to, we'd get to the Gulf um, and we'd kind of like stop there. That's how I found out I was, <laughs> I was prone to seasickness. I mean, that, the sea is no joke. I mean, the river was the most we'd ever went was like downstream. We would go like maybe 13 miles an hour you know and then upstream like maybe five to seven yeah no the sea is very very unforgiving there's i don't think i could it's a different world different animal so before we get into the whole alaska destination what Mm -hmm. i didn't even know there were zen monasteries in vermont just tell me a little bit about who you are and where you're from and then how you got to the zen monastery from all that okay so zen monastery is actually in upstate New York. Um, that's that's different. That's like the first, uh, like you know, the monastery I went to. The one in Vermont is a was a Tibetan retreat, like a Shambhala Tibetan retreat center. So it was it, it was like a so the monastery in that one, yeah. So they're they're two different things. But um, yeah, so I'm originally from Somalia. I came to the states when I was like about eight. I grew up in Jersey City. I later I spent most of my time in Columbus, Ohio, high school and college and whatnot. I went to Ohio University to get a uh, journalism degree, which ended up just being a political science and English and communications kind of mix. I ended up at the monastery when I was, I want to say it was 2016. It was October of 2016. I was just very burnt out from life. I was at the time working as a freelancer in Columbus, Ohio, and a social worker. I ended up working on my uncle's will after he passed away to just to help out my father because he was the executor. And I spent a great amount of time doing that, almost a year. That was kind of a catalyst after I was done to really explore uh, the things that I wanted to in my life and to take full control of it. And I honestly just needed to get the heck out of Columbus, Ohio. Like every great story started with, I got to get the heck out of Columbus, Ohio. (laughs) 
<laughs> not that Columbus, yeah. Ohio is a terrible place. It's not. It's really not. And now that I've been gone for a while, I really appreciate Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, now but, I love going back. And people mm-hmm. are like, oh, man, I meet so many people from Ohio that travel. And it's on one hand, it's like, okay, well, we travel well because we want to get out. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, it's like, I, I love going back. I love seeing it. And it's it's really not that not a bad place. It's actually a great place to be, especially now. So. Oh yeah. Oh, it's changing too. And it's getting bigger. So yeah. Yeah. I think it was just that, that small, it was just, I always like thought Columbus, Ohio was like a small, it was like, it's a big city when you really think about it. I was really surprised to see that it was bigger than Boston, but it's, it operates like a small town. I feel like I, that, that's what I was trying to get away from. Um, but I didn't want to necessarily be back in New York City either. I knew that I just had to get out of there. And yeah, the monastery came up, Google search again. I was already familiar with the Zen um, because I learned about it and started practicing it in college because I had a great professor who you know, had a very interesting, it, it was a senior English course and he would make us read these really, really fascinating books. So uh, that's how I got into it, uh, the whole meditation thing. And then about, you know, six years later, here I am, like, burnt out and, you know, trying to figure out where I want to go. And I didn't want to aimlessly just roam because I knew sooner or later I'd run out of money. And I don't like not having a purpose or intention when I'm planning things. I was just Googling a place that I, a place in the mountains that I wanted to go right. And I Googled uh, a mentor of mine from D.C., told me um, that he lived in the Adirondacks for some time when he was much younger. And he said, oh, you should look into, you should look into maybe, you know, living out somewhere over there, like in the mountains, you know, get a cabin or whatever. So I researched it. And the, the first place that came up was way too expensive and not, you know, tailored to the spiritual aspect of what I was looking for. So at the time, I think I needed community but I didn't know, I didn't have the language for it. I wanted to be around like-minded people. Um, and I kind of wanted to be, you know, kind of like in a cloister with like-minded people and to be practicing something greater, um, living a greater purpose than just what I know and what I was rejecting, which was the nine to five. And I wanted meaning. So the third place I found was, the, was Zen Mount Monastery in the Catskills of New York. And I, I didn't know anything about upstate New York at all. I grew up closer to downstate, but it was on a mountain and I started, you know, doing the interview process. I told them I was familiar with Zen and I started a one month residency. And at the time they said, I think it was like September when I did it, September of 2016. And they were not taking they were not taking any more people past October. So it would it was either I you know, started in mid-October, which was three weeks um, away, or I waited until January. Again, that was like another kind of serendipitous now or never kind of thing, where even even if it had been smart for me to just stay and, you know, save a little bit more money and then, you know, devise a a more long-term plan to go in January... I was just so done at that moment. I did not like I needed I needed to be saved in that moment from wh- whatever I was feeling. 
um, the emotional turmoil and, you know, the confusion and the stuckness. So yeah, I said, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Three weeks is fine. And then it took me three weeks to, you know, clean up my whole life in Ohio and leave. (laughs) It's the old, uh, Zen monastery limited time offer situation. I've heard it a hundred times. <laughs> it's a call if to action. Call, if, listen, if you call in the next five minutes, okay, but but wait, there's more. If you call in the next five minutes, you can take advantage of this offer. That's exactly how it went. <laughs> and then they list off the free yoga mat, the robe, free haircut uh-huh. you'll get, all of that. If you call in the next five minutes. Yay, yay for spiritual materialism, right? (laughs) But yeah, no. Um, So yeah, within three weeks, I cleaned up uh, everything. I put, I, at the time I was living in downtown Columbus, Ohio. I was subletting. So that's the beauty of also, I I, like, honestly, I, I have not, at that time, I had not had an apartment, like a lease since college. So from the time I moved back, I was just either subletting or I was like living at the, you know, part-time living at home or uh, a hotel that I used to uh, manage. So like, I, I think that made it really possible for me to take everything, take whatever I had. Um, it's not like I had to, you know, leave my lease or, you know, close. I, I didn't have a bunch of things to, I was already living this very nomadic uh, spirited lifestyle, but just in Columbus, Ohio. So I packed up and I left and I told my parents, my poor Muslim parents, that I was going to be, um, the way that I phrased it, I didn't want to scare them, right? Because I obviously, you know, I wasn't going to be a monastic and it's a very confusing thing for, um, someone, people like my parents to hear. They don't know a lot about Buddhism or, <laughs> self-exploration as I as I see it so I I think initially I told them that I was going there like to study like it was you know like I I I phrased it in a way that it was more of like uh, oh I'm gonna study you know eastern religion you know at this monastery and what did they say they I mean my dad my dad saw through it kind of right away uh, my mom was like, oh, you know, whatever. Like, you've kind of been a nomad anyway. Any chance that I got, I would, you know, I would leave every weekend. I would leave Columbus, Ohio if I could. And then when I started working part-time or freelancing, I was gone. Like, I was just on the road. Um, so she wasn't too surprised. My father, on the other hand, his first instinct was, well, are you... He, he first said, I forbid you. You're not, you know, you're not allowed. And I said, that's not, you know, come on, like that's never worked and then he was like are you are you trying to convert are you are you are you leaving islam and i said no of course not that's that's silly cuz I, I he just didn't get it he just didn't get it and then when i got to the monastery i tried as much as i could to bring them into my life at that time so even though we were you know we didn't have access to phones or anything on our days off which we did we had a day and a half off I would call them. I would call them on the landline and I would speak to my parents. I would speak to my little siblings, kind of like to let them know that, hey, I'm alive. I haven't been, you know, taken by a cult, which some, some of them thought that happened. So I think that me walking them through and like involving them in that decision 
uh, made it a little bit easier for them to maybe not accept, but at the very least not deter me. So how much does a staying at a Zen monastery cost? And what was what was the everyday like? They have, um, I, I believe it's, I don't know if it has changed, but it's like a few hundred dollars um, for the month. So what they do is if you're going to stay, if you're going to stay for a month, there is a fee. Um, but they also do not want to um, let anyone, they, they don't, they don't want to deter anyone from coming. You know, they don't want to discourage anyone from coming because of their finances, right? Because obviously people who are trying to, you know, there's people from all walks of life that are trying to go, go to monasteries or temples. So what they do is it's either what you can afford or if you can, um, you know, if you can't afford the fee. Um, again, I can't, I don't know the exact number because it might have changed, but I know I worked it out. It, was, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't a lot. And again, and they also have like scholarships and stuff like monthly scholarships um, that you can apply for as an artist or social worker or, you know, but they work with you. Now, if you do a year residency, which can only happen if you are there for a month or more, and there's like this whole, you know, you have to meet with the monastics and, you know, you have to go through this long process of interview to even determine whether or not you can do a year that year is free because you're there to practice and serve the monastery. So they don't, you know, they don't make you pay for it. As far as the day-to-day, so we were on Tuesday through Saturday, um, Tuesday at 1.30 uh, through, through, actually I lied, through Sunday at 2 p.m. Um, and then we'd have, you know, from Sunday 2 p.m. to Tuesday again at 1.30 to ourselves. So we'd wake up around uh, 4 four in the morning, 4.20 or 3.55, depending on the week. And we would, uh, we'd be, we'd get woken up um, by bells. So, you know, someone would go around and like ring a bell and that was kind of like your alarm clock. And we would sit for a couple of hours after that. And then we would, you know, do our morning service. We would, you know, start the day in silence. We would have breakfast. And there's like all these jobs, you know, like, cause they didn't have staff, right? So the staff is the monastics. So, and, and the people, the residents. So everyone would be, you know, divided up. Um, so some people would be working in the kitchen, you know, preparing the meals. Everyone would participate in cleanup duty, um, you know, washing dishes and whatnot. There would be, you know, people that are in housekeeping. There would be people who are in, groundskeeping. There are people who are in the office. There's people who would be in the shipping department because they had, you know, they would, you know, ship books and cushions and, you know, all of these things. They had an online store and a physical store. So, you know, and like, depending on the day, if you're a resident, like a short-term resident, you can be doing any of that, you know? So at the time that I was there, I mean, I, I was in the kitchen, I was in the office, you know, doing editing work, I was in the shipping department. I, I mean, there, I did gardening, you know, um, but our, the schedule is protected by these periods of time that you're sitting. So depending on, you know, the, the month, um, cause they have like a few months a year where it's training periods and they sit, you know, an extra period. Other than that, you basically have your wake up, your morning sit, and then you have your evening sit. So, and everything else is kind of in between that. So lunch, breakfast, you know, dinner, um, and then you sit 
and then you know you go to bed you go to light, lights out at 9 25 so like the you're basically under the protection or the mercy how you look at it of the schedule and anybody who comes in there has to adhere to that because at the end of the day it is a religious place so it's not like you can just come in and you know be on your phone and you know do whatever you want or you know you, you really really you know it's not for everyone I just say that it's in i'm guessing a beautiful building and you're surrounded by the adirondack mountains so uh, the who, cat skills the cat oh, skills and it's actually it's yeah and it's actually on a mountain like it, it's that monastery itself is on a mountain and the building was like uh, i think it used to be a catholic catholic church in the 70s so yeah it's gorgeous it's absolutely gorgeous and they've ad- obviously added additions to it but yeah it's absolutely i mean it's uh it's so beautiful. Yeah. I have a quick question mm-hmm. that I need answered. How did the bell, <laughs> how did the bell ringing guy wake up? That's interesting. I think he might have had an alarm clock, I would say. He would have to, right? Okay. I mean, yeah, so yeah, he would have to. Alarm clock. Hey, no, no, no. We we can have alarm clocks too, but there's no need to. You know, like if you have someone uh if you have someone waking you up, you can, you know. Like we, but yeah, and that, that, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing. And actually like it was, you know, if you didn't wake up, you know, like someone would come and get you. So there's like no way of opting out of this unless you don't want to, you know, and then it's like, okay, then, you know, I don't want to be here and then leave obviously. But it was kind of like, let's say if you oversleep, like, no, someone comes and gets you and says, Hey, you know, wake up. You got to come, you know, you gotta, you gotta come to the morning set. So the responsibility of it was beautiful. I, I found it the uh, the the discipline of it. I found was very beautiful. At least I'm for just me. imagining this this bell ringer as you know, alarm goes off, <laughs> sits on the side of the bed smoking a cigarette. It's Tony Soprano. That's no, not no, absolutely not. I'm, he puts the not. hood on and he totally <laughs> takes on the role. But for that you know, 10 minutes of his morning, nobody Uh else is awake. So he can just. That's exactly how it happens, Joey. You're like, right. on. Like that's, that's it to the T. (laughs) Well, now I gotta go. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (laughs) Um, Actually, I have a bell. I have a Mm. bell that I got as a gift um, from one of the, uh, one of the monastery uh, people. You want me to ring it? I have it. I have it right here. Yeah, so you please. Kind of hear how it sounds. Okay, I don't want it to be too loud. That's how you woke so up every sad. day. Every day, every day. Yeah, um, that's, that's just not bad. Do it at the door. Yeah, and it's really nice because it's like it. Uh, I mean, it was also. It was, it was also used as a timekeeper, you know, for when we're sitting, because we would have like, you know, we'd sit for 35 minutes and then we'd have walking meditation and then we'd sit for another 35 minutes. And the bell was, you know, like, so the bell kind of, the bell was very, very important. Okay. That's how it, we signaled when we got up, when we were done, when we were sitting, when we were done sitting, when we were eating, when we we're done, when it's time to go to bed and it's lights out, there's the bell. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. It was very nice. I mean, obviously there were times where I'm like, oh man, like I, I, I'm so curious to know who the bell ringer is. (laughs) 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 
<laughs> so I can yell at him or something. But he's just doing, you know, he or she, they're just doing their job. You know, everyone has a job, right? You know what? Also, though, I have to say that the bell ringer was also the person who prepared the coffee in the morning. Okay. So that is also a very important person. So throughout all all of this, the the monastery, the the boat job, it it sounds like um you're you're freelancing a lot and before that and I'm sure now after that. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you do for that? Well, initially I was just working with I was working with like uh I was doing it in the real estate industry. So the first time I got into it, I was uh at first actually I was doing lots of things for free, right? Like as like as as a college student, I was doing an internship. And then after college, obviously I had a you know full-time job, but you know, you gotta have a portfolio. You gotta start somewhere. So I would like go on like um Craigslist and I would, you know, try to find gigs where I can write for people. And like I did some concert review stuff and you know, whatever I could find. Sometimes they paid, sometimes they didn't. Um, but I wasn't worried about that. I just kind of wanted um, to put a portfolio together. And then I, I got into it seriously when my uh, my brother-in-law, he he joined uh, this company that was owned by a friend of his, his friend and his dad that was like these magazines that um, catered to uh, real estate agents um, and, and their properties. Like they're like, and it was like affluent um properties you know they had it all over the country and it was based out of columbus the first one i ever worked on was uh one that was in it was like i think it was out of dc it was like the ted kennedy estate like sold for 10 million dollars or something and they needed you know a writer to get with the real estate agents and you know to write about the sale so like for advertising essentially so um i i wrote it for them and that was like my first like big thing that I had published and it was definitely like a private market. So I never really got into the mainstream writing as far as like, you know, um, pitching to um, HuffPost or Slate or, you know, Washington Post or whatever. I never really got into that kind of opinion based stuff. I just, from then on, I just started working for um, marketing firms and just doing copywriting which is, you know, essentially ghostwriting for, uh, for the clients. So, um, yeah, I was, I was writing like market updates. I was, you know, people were giving us money for advertising. Um, and I would be doing their websites, um, blogs, whatever, whatever they needed, you know, biography statements, whatever they needed. I would be working, you know, with my editor and like a graphics, the graphics person. And I just basically just did all the writing. So, and then I, I got to know, you know, people in the industry and I would just kind of take on more, you know, work here and there while I still kept my uh, full-time job because I wasn't making enough to be, you know, to go full-time freelance. What was your full-time job? My full-time job. Um, so I did the hotel. I was assistant manager at a hotel for two years after college. And then I went on and I did uh, mental health social work for a year in the nonprofit world. And then I, after that, I think that's when I delved deeper into my freelance. So I, I kind of, when I quit that, when I, like, that was the last nine to five that I had. 
was the social work job. And then I just, you know, I had some a little bit of money saved. And then I also was uh, freelancing a little bit. And then everything just kind of stopped when I got to the monastery, right? Because like, I couldn't, like, there's no way that I thought, like, I, I think ignorantly, I thought that I could do both, that I could still, you know, freelance and be at the monastery. But like, no, you don't, there was no way that I could have done that. So at that time, you know, like freelancing wasn't a huge priority of mine. It was just a matter of, I just want to explore this deeper. I don't, I don't want to go back to work until I know in what capacity I want to go back to it. And I think that's kind of what drove the seasonal. That's why like when I knew I needed to find a job job or go back to some kind of, you know, venture that made money, I knew that I did not want to go right back to nine to five, but I knew I needed money. So again, it was almost like just trying on different, you know, same goal, but different ways of going about it, if that makes sense. Like I can make money, I can travel, I can, like, how, how do I, how do I work it out? So let me see if seasonal life is for me. The Alaska job, how did, how did that end? That ended very well. I, uh, I went right from, it was such a warped, warped week for me. So at that time I got the job and they, they offered me, they gave me the offer letter, like within a week. I was really nervous because I really, really, really did not want to be on the river anymore. It was just like very intense. The money was low. I wasn't, the morale was low. I wasn't crazy about it at all. And I knew I needed something different. So I was really hoping for it. And when I did get it, um, within a week, I basically, I flew, I, I was working, I was doing the midnight to noon shift um, for those last two weeks. I was really trying to get them. So if you give, your, if you give them a two-week notice, they said that they would help you, um, they, they would get your flight home. But the thing is, like, so many people didn't give notices because it wasn't the kind of place that you do give a notice people would just like literally either jump ship or like would get, you know, fired and have to find their own way. So I tried to be, you know, proactive about it and they kind of gave me the runaround a little bit, but I finally did get them to get me a flight to JFK. Um, But they got it for me like right after my shift and they didn't tell me. So it was like 1130. We were in Vicksburg. I had just worked, you know, I'm wrapping up my 12 hour overnight shift. It's 11.30, you know, AM. And they're like, hey, we got you a flight. You know, you're going to leave out of Jackson. Your car's coming. We leave in an hour. So you need to get, you know, all your shit together and get out of here in an hour. The, <laughs> the flight, I, I basically, I had a driver that came and picked me up. And I watched the boat. It was so like, it was like something out of a movie, honestly. I'm watching the boat just like go, like go on without me. (laughs) And here I am just like on the side of, on the side of the dock here in, you know, Vicksburg, Massachusetts, Mississippi, (laughs) and waiting for, waiting for the car to come pick me up, to take me to the Jackson airport. I, the, where I, where I was for a few hours and I didn't get to New York until midnight that day, that the, the next day. So I had been up for 24 hours. I had a terrible cold. I think they said I had like pharyngitis or something. I don't know. I went to the, I went to a hospital and they, 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 uh, they, they determined I was like 
I don't know. It's like one of those like colds, viruses. So I was a hot mess by the time I got back. And then I basically went to upstate where I had kind of lived before, upstate New York, um, to like, you know, grab some belongings. And then I, I took a bus. I remember I took a bus to Ohio to go see my family um, who was leaving for the summer to, to Somalia, to visit Somalia. And then I was there for two days. And then I, I flew to Anchorage. So like, I, and I'll never, I'll never forget that trip. It was just like 10 days of just like, just warped, warped time zones, warped schedule, weather, whatever. It just, it, it's so fresh in my mind. And then when I got to Alaska, I was there for five months. So I got there like May, uh, May 7th or something, May 5th or something. And I didn't leave until the end of September when the season was up. Getting to Alaska always seems like the finish line to traveling. It's, mm-hmm. but I think it's because of the time zones, but everyone has this story of, oh yeah, flight delayed or, you know, it's this <laughs> long seven day road trip or something like this is the first year in a long time that I flew up. And it was super easy for me. But every other year, it's this. As soon as I get on the island, I'm just like, oh, finally, it's over. I can sleep for five days and just and then wake up ready to go. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, my experience, I, I never, obviously, I only went once. But both times I flew. So I can't imagine how it might be to drive. I mean, I bet it's gorgeous, but it's probably incredibly long. Yeah, it's, there's... To get to Prince, for me, you have to take a ferry from Prince Rupert, an eight-hour ferry, over to the island where Ketchikan, Alaska is. And to get from Seattle to Prince Rupert, it's an 18-hour drive. And wow. it's, it's gorgeous, you know, British Columbia, Canada. So, mm-hmm. yeah, great to see. But in 18 hours, it's impossible not to have a huge swaths of your time just during night. So it's blackout and there's, you know, you're driving along river cliffs and all this other stuff. And so you're, you're trying to get there. And also there's a lot of it is on what they call the highway of tears, which is like where a bunch of people get abducted. So you're also worrying about that. And so, yeah, it's beautiful, but it's also like, okay, we got to get through this 18 hours, like quick. So you're, you're trying to stay alive too. That's right. crazy. Wow. Wow. No, I wasn't playing. I, 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 there was no way I could have like, I couldn't have driven anyhow, but yeah, no, I, I flew. And actually my flight was pretty, it was pretty smooth. Like it was, I went from Columbus to Chicago and I just, it was like a six hour straight shot from there to Anchorage. And like I stayed in Anchorage for the night and then I took the, took a bus to Seward the next day. So it was pretty smooth, that part, at least for me. What was Alaska like for you? I mean, you had, you had dreamt about it and you kind of grew up in Columbus, a little bit in Jersey when you're younger and you're from Somalia. You get to Alaska, like how, how was it? Oh man, Alaska was like, a holy grail for me. Oh, it was so the like as soon as I got there, um, the first time when my cab driver was from, um, I believe he was from he was a Muslim guy um, from Sudan, and if you can like like just how surprised, pleasantly surprised I was 
to like just my first experience with a, someone in Alaska to be this like, you know, Sudanese Muslim guy who like, you know, like there's like, there was like that African thing initially that happened. I was like, Hey, you know, where, where are you from? I, it was, and then the mountains, you know, the backdrop and the air. Oh man. I, it was a dream for me. I'm huge into mountains. I love to hike. I have no business being from Somalia. Honestly, I'm pretty sure I should have been, you know, born somewhere else because like, I feel like I've been chasing mountains since college, but I mean, Alaska was just like, I had a lot going on like mentally and emotionally in my life at that time, but like, it was, it was all worth it. Like being in Alaska, the, the being in the mountains and like having, you know, such access to, you know, glaciers and the sea and, you know, like everybody for the most part that comes to Alaska wants to do outdoor stuff, you know, even if they've never done it, you know, they want to experience it. So being surrounded by people from all over who do want to hike and who, you know, just want to work hard and also spend as much time as outside was like a dream for me. And like, I fell in love with the sun. I never appreciated the sun until I got to Alaska. It was definitely a little disrespectful at times because it was just, you know, a little too bright. And like I, my shift was really early. I would, I would work from six to two and I would wake up around five. Not going to lie. Sometimes I'd wake up around five thirty, five forty-five because minute walk, but I, I would, you know, at night I worked at a, I part-timed at a restaurant. So I'd be getting home at midnight and, you know, the sun is still, you know, up. And sometimes like I'd stay up, like on my days off, I would stay up to kind of like watch the sunset, which is, you know, BS because it comes right back up. <laughs> and, and I just like, I, I loved it. I loved it. I, I, I loved every, I mean, it was intense. I got a headache the first week I was there. I had a terrible migraine because like, you know, just getting used to the time difference. And then my parent, my family was in Somalia at that time. So like, I would be talking to them like on FaceTime or WhatsApp. They were like 12 hours, 11, 12 hours uh, difference. So, I mean, it was, and then also like everyone on the East Coast or the Midwest was four hours. So the timing, like, I, I mean, I didn't basically talk to anyone unless I needed to, which was basically my family. Um, I hiked a lot, uh, which was nice. I found out I'm prone to seasickness, which was nice. Um, I, I went on the Alaskan Railroad, which is very nice, but mainly I think it was the hiking. I've never, ever, ever, ever hiked that hard in my life. I mean, it was the first, the first hike I did, like it was like 3000 elevation, like 3000 feet, like right away, you know, like there is no, <laughs> it's like those mountains have zero mercy. That was like my life. My life was, uh, working, 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 and then hiking, hiking, hiking. And just like I, the community was really nice. Seward, lovely, lovely community. Um, we'd have like open mic nights and stuff. And I would like, you know, do read my poetry. And by the end of it, I mean, it was, you know, I had a bunch of friends who were also artists who would, you know, perform with me and stuff. And, but it was intense, you know, Alaska was very, very intense. I actually almost, I didn't stay, but I almost took a job in Anchorage, a marketing job. For some reason, I, I didn't know if I wanted to go back to wherever, I guess the East Coast. So I opened myself up to just for funsies, apply for jobs. And I, I, there was this one 
that I was like really, really, really close to getting, but I didn't want to do that to myself. I, I had no idea how winter in Alaska, you know, like I romanticize places a lot and I, the reality of winter would have hit me very quick. But yeah, I loved Alaska and I almost went back this season, but I, I had something else come up that was much more aligned to like my true, my true, I guess, goal in life, if you could say that. So I had to take that opportunity. So yeah, I actually would have been going there now, I think, if I would have said yes. True goal. Now you got to tell me, I, you, you put it so mysteriously. Like what? I what know, are, I know, it's so big. I'm going back to Vermont. So I'm going right back to not far from where I was last year. So it is, I'm going to be, so my goal, I have a goal of like writing my, my, um, I'm working on two things right now. I'm working on collection of essays about like, they're, they're more, I mean, they draw on my life a little bit, but they're also like more philosophical. And I've been working on it ever since, I think it's been a few years now, but I've been trying to like hone it. But then I'm also working on a collection of poetry and I really, really want to get it done in the next couple of, I don't know, by summer. What, what I learned from the monastery and from, you know, like a temple or, you know, Vermont was, um, I'm really, really interested in trying to figure out like how to lead a life of balance between nature and creativity, um, even like financially. I'm really interested in, well, what do I need? How much money do I need in order to live? How can I, you know, live in, in a way that is, you know, not harsh on the environment? And how can I, you know, also contribute? This place is, it's an intentional community in Vermont, um, in Northern Vermont. And it's been around the, the, the center has been around. Um, it's also an organic, working organic farm for about 30 years, but it's been active for 20. And I'm going to be one of the uh, managers, I think one of three managers. The owner is trying to turn it more into a co-op. He really, I committed for a year. So he wants, um, you know, people that can, you know, not only share the responsibility, but, you know, just like kind of share the profits as well. Um, I do get paid. Um, and I get, you know, I get my own cabin and whatnot. I get to learn more about organic farming, which is, you know, something that I'm very curious about. I've done it in like small capacities, but definitely not, not full on. I am going to be, you know, also doing some of their marketing. They have some like retreats, not as intense as the retreats that we had in the other place I was at. This is like a very small, uh, retreat size, like maybe 10 to 15 people at a time. It's, yeah, it's, I I visited a few weeks ago and it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. There's like chickens and alpacas and um, sheep and there's like outhouses. Um, He's like worked really hard to make, to lower the, you know, to do as little, to make as little like carbon footprint as possible. It was really hard actually the first time I went because, I mean, there is a bathroom. There's like two working bathrooms on site, but like each cabin has, uh, you know, like a, their own little version of a outhouse, right? That reminded me of my, like, my early, early childhood in Somalia when we didn't have bathrooms. So like bathrooms have been like very, very important to me 
in the state since I've been here. So for me to like now go to a place where that's not, you know, that's not a, that that's not something that I, that's, it's not that it's not available, but it's not the focus is it's a little nerve wracking, but it's also very, it's aligned with my true, I guess, goal, which is, you know, to, to find that balance. And then also like, write. And I have some context there. I'm also, it's another, you know, mountainous area. So I get to, I mean, Vermont is incredibly beautiful. It's rural and, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's not far, far away from Burlington or New York or, you know, Boston, but it's, you know, it's, again, I, I have like all this, this whole big place to myself and can kind of work out, work a lot of things out. Yeah. You've got things to do and it, it's an environment where you can do them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there a skill or a lesson that you you use a lot now that you're uh, traveling more and sort of working seasonally that um, you got from your background or your upbringing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the survivalist mentality, for sure. My culture, Somalis are known to be nomadic in their nature. Um, and for a long time, like that's how they, you know, that's how they live their lives. Um, we adapt very well to our surroundings. It's a unique culture that like it, they can, Somalis can adapt very well, but they don't necessarily always assimilate. And I have this, I, my, my narrative is, is both. I grew up in both of the cultures. Um, so I can kind of take take what I learned from my culture and what I am still learning from my culture and my upbringing and also let it um, complement my, you know, the, the freedoms of being American and living in America and having access to opportunities and obviously clean water and education and all of that stuff. But I think discipline has a lot to do with it too. Growing up Muslim, we were very, my parents are very traditional and religious. And I was able to learn a lot by, you know, by going to Islamic school. Most of my childhood up until I was 18 was defined by, you know, going to Islamic school on the weekends, praying five times a day, uh, fasting. And I think all of that does teach you as you get older and you, you know, figure out what you want and what direction you want to take your life. It informs you, at least it informs me. So I take that, I take that, um, and I, I, when I, when I want to do something and I want to work on a goal or something, I, I'm, I make sure I bring both of those things in because I'm not, you know, I wasn't here on accident, you know, I'm very grateful for, you know, my opportunity and the life that I've had that had, you know, that, that I didn't think of this, you know, I, my parents brought me here and made sacrifices. And it's only fair, I think, that I tap into that and also add on the things that I I learned in, in the States that they that they can't really tap into because, you know, they were much older and their goals were, you know, about making a better future for their for their children. Is there a writer or author or poet that whose career that you sort of want yours to look like when you're finished? Hmm. It's weird. I would say, yeah, I think, no, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of writers, but I would probably say Rumi is a main, main guy for me. I, I, I really love, and he was, you know, he was, he was a, what, he was a 13th century, what, Persian 
Sufi poet. You know, he was, you know, he's a Sufi Muslim and I'm, he was very mystical and he was also, you know, holy um, and just amazing, amazing writer. He had an ability to, all of his stuff, I feel like, is just reading in between the lines. And it speaks to this like very distant and not purgatory or in between, but like a very beautiful and mystical, but also um, grounding thing that we're all looking for. Like this, I don't know, like it's, it's very spiritual and religious process for me. Like he uses Allah in a lot of his poetry, which is God. And he like, he's, I don't know, as like a spiritual, almost like as a spiritual vagabond, you know, advisor to me. That's how I look at Rumi and his like, I can, I can read his stuff like a Bible. Maya Angelou is another main, main one for me. I, I like recently bought a car. I used car and I named her, I named her Maya. Um, just because of the strength, I, I never, I never want to forget where I came from. But at the same time, I really want to hone my creativity and continue to evolve and freely express it as like a woman of color, you know, walking around in the world and in America, especially today. I want to be able to have that lens, you know, the same, the same. Uh, so it's like, it's very important to me to like, draw on different types of writers because like I, I want to do different things, you know? So, so yeah, I would say those two, Thomas Merton. Oh my goodness. Don't make me keep going. Thomas Merton is also fantastic. And he was a Catholic monk. So I don't know, maybe there's a theme here. <laughs> I don't know. Where can people find you or your writing? So I am just now my, my website. I'll share that with you. I'll probably email it to you, but I'm, I'm, I'm rebuilding oh, my website right now, but, um, medium, I am on medium. I have my book, uh, my poetry book, exit strategy, um, will be coming out in hopefully July, hopefully July. I have it. It's just a matter of putting things together, working out all the, and actually just like doing lots of transcribing. Um, but yeah, medium, medium, um, and then I, uh, I think I have some stuff on Instagram too. Some, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get into the whole social media thing. <laughs> so do you want also, people to follow you? Yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So my Instagram is uh, Sarah Omar Ali. And it's just really just like my poetry page. Yeah. And then I'm going to be locally writing for one of the papers in Vermont the Hardwick Gazette, if anybody's like in the Hardwick area, that's, that's going to be once I get there, um, which I've worked with uh, some newspapers around the area in the Northeast Kingdom is what they call that, that area of Vermont. Um, but yeah, I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, I want to thank you for coming on. It was great to talk to you and hear your story. And I'm really looking forward to checking you out on Medium and Instagram and all that. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Joey. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.